0: hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 73 of Hack to Start. This episode features Steli Efti, the founder and CEO of Close.io. Tyler and I wanted to invite Steli onto the show to share his story as an entrepreneur and sales guy. Originally from Greece,
1: Steli began his career there bootstrapping several businesses before deciding to build a tech company. With no experience, background, or clear idea where to start, he moved to Silicon Valley. After a few failed ideas, he launched a service company and developed an internal tool that would become Close.io. He and his team were accepted into Y Combinator and are now growing quickly with a very profitable platform. Sally is going to share tons of insights with us today. So this is an amazing episode you won't want to miss. So let's get to it.
0: Hey, Stelly, Thanks a lot for being on the show today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So we always like to uh, kick these things off by getting to know a bit more about the guests. So can you tell us uh, you know, where you're from, what you studied, and how your passion for entrepreneurship really developed?
2: Uh, yes. So I'm originally from Greece, but I grew up in Germany. I did not study anything. I dropped out of high school when I was about 17, 18 years old, and so I've been—I've never been employed in my life. I've been a, you know, quote-unquote, serial entrepreneur. Uh, another way of saying that is I'm completely unemployable with zero <laughs> credentials. That never had, never had a real job at a real company in my life. So when people ask me how did you decide to be an entrepreneur, I'm, I was always joking that uh, lack of options was really the reason why I became an entrepreneur. I, so yeah, so so you know, I, I had a difficult time at school. I, I, somewhat of a challenging upbringing and um, when I discovered this thing called entrepreneurship and I realized that anyone can start a business and they don't need certification for it and there's no limitation on how big your business can be based on whatever degrees you have in life. or, yeah. or uh, That was really the, the the defining moment where I was like, all right, this is it. Because I've been kind of searching my entire life for How am I – what's going to be my calling? How am I going to get to greatness? I always had an ambition that was kind of a core part of my DNA. But I had no outlet for that ambition and I had no role models around me. Um, So all I knew, all that was taught to me was that to be successful – you, my my older brother had an argument with him once, where he basically the premise was that he was saying to be successful and make a lot of money, you can do one of two things: either you become academically successful and you become a doctor or a lawyer, or you need to be a kingpin criminal. Right? Uh, <laughs> he was he was watching too much Scarface. He's like at that point like nineteen years old or twenty, right? So he yeah. didn't know he didn't know anything about anything and i was I, you know at that time i'm like 15 years old or something and i'm arguing and fighting him back on this and we're going back and forth on this argument until eventually he was like all right smart ass what's your plan for success in life and i opened my mouth and like nothing came out right uh, and that was the moment where i realized holy shit i have no clue what i'm going to do with myself and but I didn't like the two options that he offered me. I didn't want to be a criminal kingpin, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to study and become a doctor, or a lawyer, or something. Um, so when I discovered entrepreneurship as part of that, as a result of that argument, I was like, "All right, this is it. Like I could build something, and I don't need permission, and I don't need certification, and it could be as big as I wanted to be. Let's go." Uh, so that's how I got started. I, I started a few small businesses back in Europe. All of them did really well. I had a lot of beginner's luck. Uh, and then nine years ago, I had an idea for a technology company, and I had no background in tech. I knew nobody that did. I was completely clueless when it came to how to build software products. So I decided to sell everything I had. I bought a one-way ticket to Silicon Valley, and I was like, let me surround myself with smarter people than I am, and let's try to make this thing huge. And I succeeded in the first goal. Like nine years into it, I still am, uh, you know, the stupidest person in every room I'm in. But I failed on the second goal uh, with like making that thing huge. Uh, it, it became a big failure. And uh, out of that failure, you know, I I started uh, my second company in the valley, and that that company also took a few twists and turns, but ended up at where we are today, and we're doing pretty well. So it's been a wild, ride. It's
0: awesome. It's uh, a crazy story.
2: And I and I left off obviously 99% of all the details <laughs> because we could I could easily spend an hour just talking about myself so i want to i want to give you guys a chance to direct me a bit more to make this useful to the audience
1: yeah no problem so let's get like right into it so you're currently the co-founder and ceo of elastic and its first product close.io for those who may not know what is elastic and and close.io and what really motivated you to start these two companies
2: yeah, so it, uh, honestly, it's like one company that morphed into the other. Um, so we started as Elastic Sales. The idea for Elastic Sales was very simple. W- w- you know, we saw a lot of B two B companies struggle with sales, and we thought, wouldn't it be awesome if something like AWS uh, existed for sales? Like you had this sales team in the cloud, and as a new as a new startup or B two B company, you could just go online, sign up, and spin off a few salespeople, and like. Watch them online how they make calls. Look at the analytics and metrics in real time, and and scale up your Salesforce or down depending on your needs. And we thought that was a pretty cool idea. So um, the idea was to offer an outsourced sales team on demand for for B two B companies. And we did that. We offered that to over 200, 200 venture backed startups in Silicon Valley. Um, so Elastic Sales grew kind of into a um, an sales consulting and sales outsourcing services company. Um, and we became this kind of secret in Silicon Valley. We, we knew all the B2B founders. We knew all the investors. We talked to everybody and anybody. And we knew all the secrets, all the tactics, all the struggles that companies had. And we were building these new sales models and scaling up sales teams for a variety of different companies. From day one, we built an internal piece of software. We, we call, Originally, we were calling it the secret sauce. <laughs> um, and the 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 reason why we built internal sales software to run the services team was that I hated all the sales software that was out there and didn't want to use it myself. And I had two co-founders that were developers. So out of that bias and resource we were like, hey, let's build this massive services company. Um, but let's build software and software is going to be the enabling factor. To allow us to have a lot more productive salespeople than the average company has. And also to be able to scale running you know, thousands and thousands of sales campaigns. So that's how we got started. And then what happened was that the services business, Elastic Sales, grew and grew really nicely and became a, a fairly big business. And the software, you know, it took about a year where we started with this like very simple premise of let's just build something better and let's build whatever we want and need to really getting to having a point of view on what is good sales software even and what should it look like and really creating a point of view, creating a real product vision and that started to reflect in the product and the product became better and better and better and then Slowly but surely, we started getting some outside demand. So our customers w- wanted to buy the software, not just the services. Our salespeople would show the software to their friends that were in sales, and they would contact us and want to buy the software. So we started getting getting the sense that the mar- a lot of like demand from the market that that we had built something internally that people wanted to buy. And then we also had internally a small group of people that started just championing the software and going, we need to release the software. We really need to release the software. The product is amazing. It's a game changer. We need to release it. And honestly, I resisted it for a long time. You know, I'd like to take credit as the visionary founder that knew the exact right timing to launch the, the sales software, uh, Close.io. But, but I didn't. I, I had my hands full with running the services business. I knew we'd build an amazing product, but I always – I also thought that it would be distracting to run both things. So I resisted it for a while until uh, eventually I gave in. And in January 2013, we released Close.io as an inside sales CRM, a CRM software that was A lot more beautiful, a lot more powerful than a lot of CRM software out there, specifically designed to make salespeople productive by empowering them to make calls right out of the app, send and receive emails out of the app, and eliminate all the manual data entry that typically a lot of salespeople have to do with traditional CRMs. We released the software and we had the expectation that it would take many, many years for the software to grow into a sizable business just because of how competitive our space was. And we were wrong. I've been wrong about almost anything uh, that I've ever thought about as an entrepreneur but uh, once in a while I'm glad I was wrong and this was one of those rare times where the software grew a lot faster than I thought it would. Uh, We really hit a nerf in the market and within – you know 9 to 12 months the software outgrew the services business although it was a tiny team in comparison and and that was the signal to us to fully double down and focus on on clothes.io and, and that's all we do today so we we only run this one product and it's growing really fast it's very profitable and uh, we're doing
1: some amazing things with it Wow, that's an amazing story. But let's let's back up a little bit to two thousand eleven, where Elastic actually was a part of Y Combinator. And would you be able to walk us through the, what this process was like for you, and both from the application and outcome point of view?
2: Yeah, and and honestly, it, we it was even a a product before Elastic. So we started as an end consumer product, and then pivoted after YC into Elastic Sales, and then from Elastic Sales to Closeout. So as I said, a few twists and turns until we're wow. where we are right now. But I can talk to you about the experience that we had um, getting into Y Combinator, and then the, the time we had there, and how it was afterwards, if that's useful. So and, and mind you, you know, YC two thousand and eleven uh, was slightly different than today. But for us, it was a pretty amazing experience. Um, the way that we got ourselves into the interview was that uh, we basically—I mean, we had done a lot in a short period of time. So we had started the the company three months prior to. Getting accepted to YC. And in those three months, we had launched an MVP, we had good growth, we had some revenue, we had press, so TechCrunch had written about us, and Mashable and a few other places. We had uh, 300K in angel investment, right? So we had accomplished a bunch of shit that you typically would accomplish going into YC during the three months. Um, so that definitely helped. But then we also did some hacks. Like one thing that we did was that we met with uh, a ton of YC founders and we just showed them what we did and we just got a ton of advice on how, like advice that was very Y-com- YC-ish, right? So these people, mm-hmm. they, they they channeled their inner, you know, Paul Graham, PG, and they were giving us you know, the types of advice that, that we would get uh, once being in YC. And some of them really liked us and um, decided to recommend us, right, to be, to be invited. So what ended up happening was we were waiting in a lobby in a San Francisco office. I'm not going to name the angel investor, but it's a very famous person. And <laughs> he built a product that all of us have used before. So, uh, so we're super nervous. We're waiting for this angel meeting. And we're getting an email from PG that's part of a thread of uh, of another YC founder that basically sent send PG an email saying, hey, you should absolutely invite these guys for an interview. And then PG tried to look at our application and realized that the video wasn't working. So he emailed us and said, hey, dudes, can you re-upload the video? The video isn't working. And – for I don't even know why we couldn't re-upload the video, so we decided to uh, to just shoot a new one. So we're at this lobby, in this waiting room, and we're just re- recorded a new video right there and then, and uploaded it. And uh, uh, and then went into our a- a- angel meeting, and the next day we got an a- invitation to the to the interview. So I think that meeting with lots of YC founders and getting some of them to like us and to recommend us made a big difference.
1: Um, <laughs> That's an amazing story. How did you guys record the video? Did you guys just like it on, just the on the iPhone?
2: Ma- yeah, no, no, just on the MacBook. Like we just uh, did QuickTime. We hit record. We recorded it, and then we uploaded it. And we That's were basically. Amazing. If I remember correctly, I think that uh, my co-founder was like uploading it while we were the entire time doing the meeting, like having the meeting with an <laughs> angel. So he was like on his his laptop was like in the background uploading the video. <laughs>
1: That's hilarious. So you briefly mentioned it, but um Elastic actually raised a bit of money. Um, uh, so yeah. what was that process like for you? is very good. So
2: just to backtrack with my first startup that 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 I did in the valley, um, you know, i the, the first time I raised money in Silicon Valley, I was raising money for, like, three years and I had raised a total of 80K. You know, and, and if you're making a face now that's like full of pain, that's exactly what it should <laughs> look like because it was the most painful experience of my life. I didn't know what I was doing, right? I, obviously. So it was a super painful thing. And then going through YC, uh, so uh, when that company failed is basically when we started the next business and just a few months later, we got through YC. So I was highly motivated, A, not to repeat the mistakes of the past. I'd learned a ton. And then that Pl- that platform that yc offered we just took we just jumped into it and we took full advantage of it so we like the we raised uh one and a half million in a seed round i think it took us a total of like three weeks after demo day to uh, close up that round and we did it for our batch at the, I think, amongst the best terms. like We had amazing investors at incredible terms. Uh, we raised a ton of money for that batch, right? Today it seems small, right? <laughs> but back then we were one of the biggest like, seed rounds in that batch, I think. And we, So we did really, really well and the experience was in very stark contrast to my prior experience. So uh, so, so that was really great. I mean obviously YC gives you a huge boost but but I do see a difference. Not everybody had great success in raising money and obviously some of it has to do with how much success you have with a company and the traction that you have. But a lot of it has also to do with just the pure attitude and focus that you apply to it. So I, I think that we did a few things really right Um and I'm happy to go into it, but but happy also to talk about other things.
1: No, that makes complete sense, and those are some really really good insights. So, on the topic of a sales automation, where do you see this uh, heading in the near future? It's
2: interesting. I think that sales is getting a lot of attention in the SaaS space for the first time in a long time. So, there's a lot of sales automation. There's sales intelligence. There's sales enablement. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, there's all different terms. I think that I think that at the end of the day, at at its core, I do believe a few premises that are going to stay true for a very long time. I think that sales at its core is communication. So I think that what we'll see is that more and more of what we call, what we put in the sales software category, is at its core going to be communication software. It's going to be software that enables salespeople and businesses to communicate a lot more and a lot more effectively with prospects and customers. And Because of that, I think that, so that's one big trend I think we'll see. The second big trend that we'll see is just uh, automating a larger, larger portion of the data entry part. So today, the reality of many salespeople is still that they spend about 50% of the day day doing things, and then the other half of their day uh, capturing what they just did in a database, right? Uh, Making sure that the data is accurate and up to date. And uh, obviously, a lot of Companies they don't do a lot of people don't do it and they do it really badly because salespeople don't really enjoy being you know doing data entry uh, uh, and I'm a proud salesperson myself so I think that 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 manual part of how we capture data on the sales side that's gonna go away uh, and that's never been all, uh, like marketing has has been a lot more analytical a lot more automated for a lot longer time. And I think that that's going to be a thing that the sales industry is going to see for the first time. is like taking away all the manual data entry from the salesperson's uh, desk and making it automated and making it powered by software. And I think that software is going to be a lot more focused on enabling salespeople to communicate better and communicate more. And then, you know, there's a lot of question marks down the line on like, um, you know, how much of what the salesperson does can we automate? How much can we... How much more intelligence can we infuse into uh, the salesperson based on like quote-unquote big data and and, and all these things? All that I'm still somewhat skeptical about. I think that there's some potential there. But I also think that people – that the transactional part of selling is going to be eaten up by software and by automation and by machines. But the – the, uh, the the high value part of sales and the the part of sales where we're talking about millions of dollars, where we talk about high friction type of scenarios, these things will not be automated by big data. These things are not. These things will still require a human being to interact with another human being, because people like to deal with people and people like to buy from other people. Um, although it sounds crazy to us as tech people, uh, most humans want to talk to people. That's why a lot of a lot of uh, products have like an enterprise uh, company. Click here to talk to us or contact us or contact sales. And enterprise clients want to contact sales and want to talk to to a sales rep uh, versus in stark contrast to end consumers or small businesses that want to avoid that. So I think that will never go away. And, and i share one, one interesting uh, uh, fact here for, for this audience that might be relevant. I have an executive assistant and she helps a lot with scheduling things. And one trend that I've noticed recently is that because there are a lot of services in Silicon Valley where you have like uh, virtual assistants that are basically a collection of humans that act as one human being. There's like one email address. It's like whatever, Lauren at Close.io. And it's basically a bunch of people that are behind that email scheduling things for me. Or there's even some startups, even YC startups that try to do like a hybrid between you know AI, like uh, artificial intelligence and humans acting as humans in like a personal assistant capacity because those startups are there and these services are there one trend that i've recently noticed is that a lot of times when i talk to people and at the end of our conversation we have to reschedule something or schedule something again i go hey just get in touch with mary and find us another time to talk some more people have started asking me hey stelly i was curious um is Mary a real human? <laughs> and that and that just first time it happened, I didn't even notice. It. I was like, of course, yeah, of course, you know, she she's a childhood friend of one of my co-founders, and she's awesome. blah, blah blah blah. But once I heard it for the fifth time, I was like, wow, maybe in the future we're gonna have to have like some like certified human certification, just like if you like certified organic. So when you email with people, even on the phone with people, you want to know, is this a real human or am I talking to like artificial intelligence? It just strikes me as interesting that people – that that's a shift that's going to probably happen but also that people care. Like why does it matter, right? Um, And I started fucking around with people by just looking them in the eye and going, why? Like why do you want to know? Would you discriminate if it was artificial intelligence? Do you have something against artificial intelligence? So I'm just screwing around with people. It's an interesting trend. So anyways, coming back to like where sales software and sales automation goes, I think that more communication focus, I think more, more automated data collection, but I'm not so sure on like will it replace the salesperson. I, don't, I think so on the lower level transactional sales, but not on the really high stake sales. I think people will always want to talk to other people.
0: So building on this thought that people like doing business with other people, is there any advice or tips you could share with, you know, newer founders or maybe people who don't consider themselves sales savvy, uh, just just any kind of process or, or insight you can share with us?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think there is a process and I think it's, it's a super simple one. Um, so the the first thing, the first step from... A lead. The first thing you want to do when you have a lead or a prospect is you want to qualify them. That's the very first step in the sales process. And qualifying them, to me, in its essence, means finding out can we help them and can they help us. And only if the answer to both these questions is yes, they are truly qualified. And this takes time. This is probably the part that takes the most time in the sales process. Truly understanding the prospect. What are you trying to accomplish? Why? And how? What have you tried in the past? What are the other solutions that you're looking into? Like truly digging deep and trying to, and caring about the answers, not just asking the questions to check them off a list, but really trying to understand who is this customer, this prospect, and are they the type of business or the type of customer that we can truly serve well? And only if the answer is yes, then you're trying to sell anything. So the first step you do is you qualify. Once you qualified somebody, then you go for the close. And going for the close sounds simple and is simple in terms of its the tactic itself, but it, the challenge, the, the thing that makes it challenging or hard is the emotional part of it. So what I mean by that is that once I truly know who you are and what your business is all about, and once I'm truly convinced that... You are the perfect fit for our product and our product will really serve you well and I know why. Then selling you is simple. I can just tell you, hey, after I've learned all these things, yes, we have the right solution because of A, B, and C and here's exactly how we're going to crush it for you. It's simple. Like I, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to be really convincing because I'm convinced. I'm going to be able to sell you because I'm sold myself that this is the right thing. But then… What I need to do is I need to shift from you know, the first part of the conversation which was all about me being friendly in the sense that me caring about you like and trying to understand you and, and, and asking questions and listening to then moving over to the strength part where I'm telling you what to do. Now I have to be strong. I have to be an authority figure. and It's not a debate. Once, I, once you are a qualified lead, I'm not asking you to buy. I'm telling you you're buying. Right? I'm not. It's not a debate anymore. And the framework that I want people to think of is like think of a good doctor, for instance. Right, a good doctor, you sit down and they take. A, if they're really good, they'll take. They'll really want to understand what your problem is. They really want to take a holistic approach. They really will spend time. And not just go quickly like, what's the problem? Where Does it hurt here? All right, this is your problem. This is the solution, right? We all had these experiences where we didn't feel really taken care of and that somebody spent the proper amount of time to really understand what the issue is. But a good doctor takes a lot of time and really takes a holistic approach and really tries to understand what's going on. But once they know, then they're telling you what you need to do. They're going, all right, this is the issue. Here's how we're going to solve it. This is the prescribed you know, remedy to your problem, and they, they, there's no question mark at the end. Maybe this is going to help, All right. No, <laughs> it's this is going to help. So um, the, I think the, the thing that's hard about closing is that people don't want to ask that question. They don't want to tell the customer, "Hey, you need to buy the solution, and you're buying today. Are you guys ready to go?" Like, there, most people are afraid to just ask that question or, t- or make that statement. So they end the conversation with, "Oh, I think this is a really good fit." Um, all right, so. Uh, why don't you just play around a little bit more with our free trial, and yeah, I think this should really work for you guys, so uh, just let us know how it goes. Like, what is this? <laughs> right? Why, if we, if I know that this is the right solution, I'm not going to be like the doctor that says, well, I know you have cancer, so uh, yeah, uh, I know that we could do these three things to solve it, so uh, now you know, so just tell me what you want to Just think about it. Like, it's not going to be the end of the conversation, right? So you want to be able to just... Once you've qualified somebody, you want to go for the close, which means you want to tell somebody they need to buy and how they need to buy, why, when, and what the next steps are going to be. And then typically, you know, th- there's going to be some, maybe they buy right off the bat. maybe they have still some objections or hesitations, so you're going to have to manage through these, and you're going to have to follow up and follow through until a decision is reached. And the core responsibility in sales, the way that I summarize sales is, it is result-driven communication. When we just chit-chat and we have no purpose to our chit-chatting, we're just talking. When, when I'm talking to you and I'm trying to get you to move in a certain direction, I'm selling. But, Closing is when now that I've decided that this is a good fit and we've decided that this is really the right tool, closing is the art of communicating to you so that you make a decision. It's like stimulating a decision in a point in time. Like let's get to a decision, yes or no. You're buying or you're not buying. If you're not buying, why? Can we solve that or not? But you're generating – you're creating moments of truth. And I think that that's emotionally – Tough for people and people like to avoid that. But if you if you can overcome that, you can be incredibly effective in sales. And that's pretty much it. The steps are: first step is you qualify somebody, then you go for the close, and then you might have to manage some objections and follow up and follow through until the decision is reached. And and selling really isn't that difficult. It's not that complex. What makes it hard? Usually, is the emotional part is the fear of getting rejected, it's the fear of being annoying, it's the fear of asking one more question and maybe inconveniencing somebody, and all these fears and hesitations. Those are the things that make people ineffective in sale selling. Um, if you can overcome that, selling is simple.
0: So you guys actually built the software behind CloseIO because uh, you didn't like any of the existing software out there. What was your approach towards customer development and, and really building that software out? well we didn't listen to what customers needed Um, we just built
2: what we wanted like we were our first customer basically and the unique, so the unique situation we were in was that we were running sales for 200 different companies. So the software that we were building was serving our sales managers and our salespeople, right? So we, but we had a ton of them and they were doing a ton of different types of selling for different types of customers and different types of markets. So we, we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in hindsight and nobody has ever built a CRM like us. Like with that perspective, with that point of view in mind. So um, I think what differentiated us was that we were building software to solve our own problems and and serve our own needs, but we were not limited in having only one use case because we were doing sales for so many different other companies. And the other thing that differentiated us, I think, from from other companies that build software in this category was that I think we were the first company where we truly – All we wanted to do was serve the end user, which was the salespeople, because we were the salespeople. We didn't think about serving management. And this is very different from how CRMs traditionally were built and sold. Traditionally, the way that you... Built and sold sales software was that you were asking yourself, what is manage, what does management want? And the answer typically was, management wants reporting and forecasting. Management wants a ton of data. Um, management wants a ton of control over what people can see and access, and you know how to manage all the different users. So that was the priority in building CRMs, and then. They, you build a CRM that was serving management primarily and then management would buy the software and then management would push it down the throat of the individual salesperson. At no point in the development of that quote unquote sales software was anybody thinking about the, sales, the end user. At no point. We were the exact reversal. We at no point thought about management, right? which was also crazy because the first version of Closeout didn't have any reporting in it or very little reporting. Uh, it's crazy. Like It made salespeople a lot more productive and effective. They closed more deals, but they, they had uh, a much harder time to show that because the reporting was really very, very basic. Um, But we still had success and still tons of companies buying the software, right? But anyway, so the way that we built it was we built it for ourselves, but we were running sales for many different companies. So we had so many different use cases. We built it as the first CRM that was built with the end user in mind and not the the buyer, the corporate buyer. And our engineers, that's still true to today, our engineering team, typically there was always a big gap. And still today, I, I think that most companies have this massive gap that building sales software where the the person that's building the software, the engineer, has very little uh, empathy and understanding of what the user of the software, um, the the life of the user looks like. And they might not even like that end user, right? Engineers, traditionally, not really loving salespeople. We were very different in the sense that our engineers have a very high sales IQ, And our engineers were really good friends with the salespeople. And our engineers were sitting next to salespeople as they were building the software. And basically, there was this symbiosis of the engineer looking at the salesperson doing their job and going – why the fuck are you doing this this way? Like, this is so stupid. Like, just an engineer's mind. This, you're clicking like 12,000 times to get to this thing. Or why do you have, like, this happened really early on. Why do you have all these pieces of paper where you write down all these things? Like, this the software should be doing this. Like, this is crazy. Um, so the engineers would see these obvious opportunities to make the salesperson's life better. But then also in reverse, salespeople would do go through really painful parts of the software and then turn around to the engineer and go, do you see this shit? This, this is stupid. Why do I have to do this, right? And also the engineers would just be the exposed to the grind of selling and the emotional – how emotionally taxing it is and the, how difficult some of these conversations were and the making the calls and doing all this stuff. So – they they really cared about the sales people. They really cared about their peers and, and I think that that created a completely different culture where our engineers and the people that build our product both understood selling a lot better than the average engineer and really cared about the end user because they were their friends and they were exposed to it a lot more. So I think all these things coming together were the reasons for why our product was a lot better than what was out there in the market and why we succeeded so much. Um, but it's all in hindsight. It was not strategy. We didn't design it. We didn't Say, a lot of services businesses go, We need to launch a product. How can we launch a product? Let's think of a product to launch because we really should be in the product business and not in the services business. And then they strategically choose these things. A lot of times people ask me, How did you guys choose to get into the CRM market? By not choosing, like we never made that decision. It just kind of all happened. Uh, and in hindsight, it made perfect sense and it was all kind of executed perfectly, but that's really in hindsight. Uh, and we didn't plan to make these things happen. They kind of just fell into place very organically
0: that's awesome yeah I know I love that I love that that, that the, the synergy between the teams and you know like you said looking back it all makes perfect sense but who could have known then right yeah yeah so what's your day-to-day role like now as, as CEO and and what's next for close IO
2: are good questions uh, so I'll answer the, fir- the the second one first so what's next for close I I think that um, for us it's keep doing what we're doing because what we're doing is really working well. Um, We are one of the fastest growing companies in our category. We're incredibly profitable, which is probably one of the few, if not the only company in our category that's highly profitable. Um, We're just 10 people and our nearest, smallest competitor is 150 people and we are larger in revenue than them. So We're doing really well, um, and we want to keep doing really well. Uh, For us, that means that we need to grow the team a little bit. So I'm bragging partially with the 10 people, but it's irresponsible at this point. We're uh, super understaffed, so we're hiring, and we need to grow the team a little bit. But we're never going to build a huge huge army. We're really big believers in small teams that do – incredibly leveraged things. So we want to build a massive business uh, with a fairly small team and we want to keep uh, innovating on the product category with a lot of ideas and a lot of things that we want to do with the product to serve our customers better. So there's a lot more to be done but at its core it's going to be keep building an amazing product and keep out teaching and out educating our competitors and really uh, being a thought leader in the space and helping create a new flavor of salesperson and sales approach. Uh, That's for what's next with Close.io. when it comes to my role as CEO, as you were asking the question, I was thinking, "You're like, what does the day-to-day life of a CEO look like, or your job?" I was like, "Who the fuck knows? Like, <laughs> I, I don't. I'm, I'm still figuring it out. I, it's ever changing. I mean, at its core, at its core, I have a few basic responsibilities. One is taking care of my team. Um, the other one is making sure that we keep attracting uh, amazing people to join. And this is something where we, you know, I interview a ton of people. I spend a ton of people hiring, and then you know we hire incredibly slowly, so we really take a sweet time, and we really look for incredible, amazing talent that is just the perfect fit, and we make zero compromises on that. So we're hiring really, really slowly, but hope to doing really well. So you know, bringing in more people that are amazing to the team, taking care of my team—that's one big responsibility. And then the other big responsibility is making sure that you know the culture in the company is right, that we are focusing on the right things, that we. Have clarity in terms of our direction that we're all aligned and moving in the right direction, the, the s- same direction. And then the other responsibility is to kind of be the cheerleader of the company and the the face of the company uh, uh, to the outside world. So you know, I do a lot of conferences, I do a lot of content marketing. Uh, you know, it, it, it looks like I'm a super nar- narcissistic asshole when you look at our blog and our content because it's like me everywhere. Um, but it's uh, it's been working really well, and uh, people resonate really well, so that's why I keep doing it. So I'm I'm a spokesperson for the company. I create a lot of content. I teach a lot of the things that we learn to the the world, and that attracts a lot of uh, traffic, audience, uh, and then that audience translates into new customers and, and and revenue for us. So these are the the main buckets. How I spend my time, really, like hour to hour, minute to minute. Depends on the phase that we're in. Sometimes I spend a lot more time on the marketing side, a lot less time on you know, managing the team or recruiting. Right now, it's shifted uh, uh, you know, the other way around. So right now, you know, hiring, recruiting takes up a much bigger part and, and taking care of my team internally takes a much bigger part than representing us outside. So it, it switches depending on the next phase that we're in. But uh, it,
1: it's those big buckets in a nutshell. Thanks for sharing your day to day role as a CEO at Close.io and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what you guys build uh, in 2016. So what are some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded or used lately? I mean, I do use this. Sounds cliche,
2: but I do use Closer quite a bit. Um, so you know, I obviously use it to communicate with my customers. To co- we use it also to com- in some other use cases, just to uh, push dog fooding to the extreme. Um, so I use Closer a lot. I, lo- I use Evernote a lot. Um, I take uh, I just have a I take a lot of notes, but I don't take notes on paper. I take all the notes in in Evernote. I have a lot of like. I have a daily routine of just having like um, a kind of daily log of what's going on. And I start my day with a few basic questions before I even get to the office to make sure that I have the right focus and that you know I have the right level of clarity before I even show up at work. Close.io and Evernote are definitely the places I spend most time. Other than that, I don't know. I mean, um, we as a company, we communicate. 90% of our communication is in, uh, in, in HipChat. So we use uh, company chat. Uh, a lot, we use almost no email. So I'm definitely spending a, a ton of time in HipChat. And then there's a little bit of like Google Docs for like uh, documents that we're collaborating on. I have a few Skype calls here and there. You know, I don't know. Every other piece of software that I use is super, super tiny in comparison to CloseIO, Evernote, and HipChat, probably.
0: What are the, what are some of those uh, questions you ask yourself in the morning if uh, if that's not too personal of a question? Yeah,
1: no, it's
2: not. Um, it's nothing like it, it's nothing too crazy and it's changing also like I, I try to keep it fresh, but it's very basic things. Um, questions like what am I grateful for today, right? It's simple things like that all the way to what's the one thing I want to accomplish today and how can I make sure I do that first? right? So it, it, it's things like that. Sometimes I'll change it uh, just to keep things fresh. But it's just – to me, um, I, those are, it's five questions every morning and it's just these questions help me to kind of create a little bit of like – it's like zooming on a camera. It just creates a little bit of a, a focus, refocus in the morning of like, okay, yes, this is why my life is great. This is why things are awesome. This is the thing I really need to accomplish today. This is what I need to look out for. like and then let's go uh, and it just takes a, a few minutes, but it it's proven to be super helpful to me because it gives me that level of clarity instead of just stumbling into work and then being very reactive to what's happening. you know I, 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 at this point, I have a huge amount of like requests for my time and attention every day internally and externally. So starting my day with those questions helps me. Being control of my time, being a lot of pr- more proactive and ce- selective in what I will do and how we'll do it. Um, so uh, it's been I've been doing this for like the last three years. I think it's been pretty useful to me.
0: That's that's really cool. I really like that. And so, do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by, and you think others you know would like to know about that that you can share with us?
2: I'll share the highest value ROI piece of advice that I can give, um, measured by the amount of emails I get every day and the amount of dollars people have reported uh, that this advice has, has generated for them. And I'm almost getting sick of talking about it, but this is not about me, so I keep giving this advice because I know it's useful to people. And, and that advice is very simple and it comes back to um, to a thing that I, didn't, that I just slightly touched on, which is follow up and follow through. Um, I think that most people drastically undervalue how important follow-up is and how amazing the results are that you can generate if you follow up a lot more. So my personal follow-up philosophy that I want to share with people is that when we have a positive interaction, either a call, a meeting, an email exchange, something that was positive, that, that pointed to that there's interest on both ends to make something happen, I will follow up indefinitely until I hear from you if you ever go silent on me. <laughs> and, Love it. And, and this means forever, right? Forever. And the reason for that is that I think most, of, most people's underlying assumption when they don't hear back from somebody is that the person has, le- uh, has no interest anymore and they've been rejected. And, and I'm not in the mind reading business. My hypothesis when people don't get back to me is that they got busy. They got just distracted or busy. Something else has happened. And it's my responsibility to make sure that the relationship stays active until they have a chance to respond and reply. I personally don't uh, care if the reply is positive or negative. Yes is good. No is good. I'm just a big champion for clear outcomes. The thing that I'm not going to allow to happen is the two of us wanted to make something happen, either work together, you wanted to buy my product, invest in my company, whatever it is, and then you went silent for a few emails and I just let it go. And this is very simple advice. Just keep following up forever. Uh, I know that it's tough for most people to do. So some of the listeners will go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to be annoying. So for those people, just follow up. Just double the amount of follow up that you've done uh, uh, that that you would have done in the past, and you will see incredible results. I'm saying, I'm telling you guys, I'm getting five to ten emails every single day. We're built, We're writing a whole book about just case studies of this. People tell me, Stella, we just closed this huge round just because we followed your follow-up advice. Steli, we just got this massive customer. It was the 15th email. It's just because I followed your follow-up advice. Like with case study after case study after case study of people just doing this one simple thing, which is following up a lot more than they used to and seeing incredible results as, a, as an outcome. So if, if if we could get just a few people that listen to us today to follow up more, we made the world a better place in this podcast. So this is the this is my parting ways uh, advice uh, for you guys. And oh, oh, one more thing: this is a podcasting audience. I do also have a, a podcast. So if you enjoy listening to podcasts, you know you might want to check it out. Um, it's Heat and Shaw, my co-host who's the co-founder of Kissmetrics and Crazy Egg and is a, an amazing marketer and myself, who comes more from a sales perspective. The two of us uh, do this uh, twice a week. You can find it on thestartupchat.com if you're interested. wanted to throw that out there for the podcasting folks out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great show. I listened to it myself, actually, and we'll definitely include a link uh, in the episode recap over to that as well for you guys to, uh, to check out. Awesome. Steli, thanks so much, man, for taking the time to chat with us. It was a great episode. Loved uh, love speaking with you.
2: Hey, my honor and pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.